Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz. Good day and welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare. My name is Dr. Stan Schwartz and I'm excited to welcome you all and get started with an insightful conversation with a very special guest today. Before we do that, I'd like to give you that real quick 60 second update on COVID. You know, back earlier this year, our good friend, Dr. Fauci said, if we don't really get this under control, we'll hit 100,000 cases a day by fall. Dr. Fauci was prescient we are hitting 100,000 cases per day. An important thing to remember is that therapeutics are better, but what we're learning is even the big guns like remdesivir and convalescent plasma seem to be most effective on people that aren't very sick and have limited effectiveness on people that get very sick, have to be on high flow oxygen and be in the hospital. Avoidance of this disease is still more important than relying on having a hospital bed available and getting therapeutics. Keep that in mind. We're a long way from a cure and months away from a vaccine. Wear the mask, watch the distance, wash those hands and avoid, as Dr. Fauci says, congregate settings. So with that, I'd like to go ahead and dive in. My special guest today is Ann Ladd, who I've known for many years. She is my favorite person from the state of Wyoming. Ann is currently on the, uh, an associate director on for the Pacific Business Group on Health, uh, <clears throat> which is uh, an organization I'll have Ann tell you about. And we're very glad to welcome her to the show. So with that, good morning, Ann. Welcome, Ann. Welcome to 36 Degrees of Healthcare. And tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Thanks, Dan. I'm cracking up that I'm your favorite person from Wyoming because I probably think I'm the only person from Wyoming. No, that there you... are two. <laughs> there are two. Okay. <laughs> Um, so as Stan said, I am from Wyoming and I uh, sort of consider myself a mutt. Um, I got started in a professional life as a journalist and um, I was working for the San Francisco Chronicle and they were having financial difficulties in the late 19, well, 1988. And so in early 1990, um, I started throwing out my resume and Kaiser Permanente picked me up to do community and government affairs. And that's how I got into healthcare. And um, so I've worked on, a, I felt this elephant called healthcare from a lot of different spots. Um, I've worked um, uh, for provider organizations, both hospital, health plan, uh, physician groups. Um, I've worked in medical databases. I've worked in medical informatics. I've worked a lot of different places, but I have found myself most happy working in transformation. And so um, I, before I came to the Pacific Business Group on Health, I ran a healthcare coalition in Wyoming. And before that, I worked for the governor of the state of Wyoming, um, helping him with healthcare policy. So I'm a, an official mutt with a lot of wide varied background. And, um, and that's how I got where I am. And um, I, I also feel like I should tell you a little bit about the Pacific Business Group on Health in case people don't know about it. It is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that works in three big bucketed areas. 
One is in advancing quality. We have a group of people that actually go into primary care practices and work with them on quality improvement, practice improvement, that kind of thing. It's it's amazing group. They've done incredible work. We have another group that works on uh, affordability, um, like trying to help employers with contracting arrangements and, and different payment models and quality measurement and basically system redesign. And then we have a third huge body of work we do around healthcare policy and trying to make the healthcare market function more like a market, um, advocating for price and quality transparency and other things that, that try to make the market function more like a market. So that's a little bit about me and a little bit about PBGH. So you mentioned you were working with the uh, Wyoming Business Coalition, which is a relatively small coalition, I understand. What attracted you to go to Pacific Business Group? And I understand there you have jumbo employers, you know, the big names with tens of thousands of employers. Exactly. Um, so um, when I was at the, the local business coalition on health, um, I loved it because these were little Zodiac um, employers. They're small employers. They can move quickly. They can do things quickly. Uh, the people uh, that we were working with um, were, 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 you know, the CEOs of the companies, the owners of the companies, decision makers. They could make quick decisions. But, um, but they could not garner the attention of the health plans. They, they just, they were too small to, to, when they asked for something, the, high, the health plans kind of went, mm, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. We'll see. Um, and the other issue, frankly, was uh, more about my own professional development. I was a staff of one, one and a half at times when we could afford to have uh, a part-time uh, other person on. And so having, for me personally, having access to the brain power that is at Pacific Business Group on Health was huge. I mean, they're, this is a group of really bright people, very driven, um, very mission-oriented. And to have access to that kind of brain power uh, was a huge drive for me. But then also having access to the kinds of employers that once they made up their mind and once they decided they were in fact going to do something could in fact garner the attention of people in power to make change was also um, a huge attractant to me. So <clears throat> let's get right down to the nitty gritty here. You know, we entitled this getting the stupid out of healthcare. Why don't you tell us about your biggest stupid? Well, I think the biggest stupid is all the misaligned incentives uh, that exist in healthcare. So there isn't just one stupid that's big, but when you roll them all up, it's, it's one big stupid. And it's a healthcare system that we've built, and I firmly believe it's within our power to unbuild it and, re, and re, rejigger it. Um, the question is, how fast can we do that? And who needs to be at the table to do that? employers are not in business to fix healthcare. They're in business to do whatever it is that they do. Fixing healthcare is very much sort of a sideline business for them. And it is, as a result, very hard to get um, main attention that we really need to get. And that's a struggle that we all have. How do we, how do we make this a high enough priority? And we do have some employers where it is. But many employers across the country aren't paying attention to it. They're just, their heads are down and they're doing what they do. And they're just trying to sell one more truck or sell one more widget or build another whatever so they can afford the price increases. And I've had a CEO say to me, you know, I'd like to not have to sell another truck 
or 10 trucks and have to just afford my healthcare benefits. I'd like that money to be put elsewhere that could be much more productive for my company, but I have to cover my healthcare benefits. So those are the kinds of things that, that, um, that we need to address. And when I'm talking about misaligned incentives, I mean, let's just start with fee-for-service. Fee-for-service in itself is a, is a model that says the more you do, the more you make. Now, if we all got paid for simply turning a, a bolt, but the bolt never attached anything to anything, never made anything stronger, never made anything better, we just were turning the bolt, you know, where would we be? And that's what we do in healthcare. We simply reward for turning the bolt, whether turning the bolt has any impact on productivity, strength, whatever. It's a silly system. So we've got to change that system. That to me is the ultimate misaligned incentive. And because of fee-for-service, we get a lot of wasteful services. We do a lot of things that don't need to be done, may in fact be harmful. But even uh, the Journal of American Medicine has admitted that as much as 30% of heart surgeries are absolutely unnecessary. So I think that this is something, you know, again, a misaligned incentive there. Think about that. As many as 30, people get their chest cracked open and as many as 30% of the time, that's absolutely unnecessary. We've got to address that. Then let's start talking about pharmacy, all the misaligned incentives in the pharmacy space. Um, you know, uh, PBGH did this amazing study where they looked at 15 of their jumbo employers claims, pharmacy claims. They had over two and a half million lines of pharmacy claims studied. And they found wasteful drugs. And I mean, I'm talking egregiously wasteful drugs that amounted, if, they, if these employers could get them out of their plan and substitute in a less costly alternative, they could have saved $63.3 million. And by wasteful drugs, I mean drugs that have multiple sources so that you've got one that's an expensive source and one that's an inexpensive source. Or you've got a combo drug that takes, you know, ibuprofen and um, an antacid and combines it and charges $1,500 for a 30-day dose, as opposed to if you just went and bought ibuprofen and Pepsid, you, you'd you pay $20 a month. Mm-hmm. Um um, uh, so the, these combination drugs that all they do is combine a drug, make it more convenient, and they jack up the price several thousand times. Um, drugs for which over-the-counter drugs are available, and then also Me Too drugs. So those are the kinds of wasteful drugs. And we could do a whole webinar on this and actually stand. Maybe that's something we should ask Lauren Bella, my colleague, to do. She, she, she worked with Johns Hopkins on this work, and it's incredible work. Then... So- let's get into rebates, rebates in the pharmacy space. Again, completely misaligned incentives. Unless the rebate makes it all the way back to the payer who paid for that drug, it's just a kickback, okay? If the rebate or whatever funds got paid out of the employer's self-insured pot, don't make it all the way back to that employer's self-insured pot. If they get stopped along the way between the intermediaries, you've got a misaligned incentive there. And somebody is making a lot of money on rebates and it isn't the employers. So <clears throat> let me come in. Let me just remind the audience, by the way, if you're listening live, you can use the chat feature, uh, the question and answer feature on your Zoom window to go ahead and ask us questions. We'll try to take as many questions as we can as we go along. You and I have had a bunch of conversations about primary care in the past. 
Let me ask you why you believe that primary care is so fundamental to doing everything that needs to happen to, to improve healthcare's quality and value. Well, that's a good, that's, there's, there's two questions. I mean, there's, that's a great question because primary care is another one of the misaligned incentives, okay? In our society, we value the technical person, the person that can do the heart surgery or the neurosurgery or whatever. We do not value the person who spends time coaching the individual on their diabetes, helping the individual quit smoking, helping the individual avoid heart disease. Those are cognitive skills and coaching skills that we are not rewarding. You go to a primary care physician and that primary care physician makes money that is one half or less of what a single visit to a specialist makes, okay? So we need to invest. That's another one of those misaligned incentives. Why are we doing that? Why are we so underinvested in primary care? In Europe, they spend about 14% of the healthcare spend on primary care, and they get much better outcomes at much lower cost. In the United States, we're at about 7% of our spend is on primary care, and our outcomes are not as good. So we really think we need to invest in primary care. But why, why primary care? What, what, what is it that we think we can do so much better? Um, we have done work with primary care physicians. Again, our, our, our quality improvement group has gone in and they worked with about just under 10,000 clinicians in California. And the, as a result of their work, this was CMS funded work. Um, they saved $34.5 million in savings. They had an ROI of $6.63 for every dollar invested. Mm. Wow. in doing this primary care. They got a letter of commendation from CMS for this. It was so well done and such good work. And what they, they, they went in and they, they, looked, they, they helped avoid, uh, avoid unnecessary stuff like avoided emergency department visits, avoided inpatient admissions, um, and they improved outcomes. And that's the kind of thing we can do if we work with primary care. If we start really investing in primary care, we should see a, a more than commensurate, in fact, we can say over a six to one reduction in spend by avoiding emergency department admissions, avoiding inpatient admissions, get helping those with manageable chronic disease get their diseases under control, pre-screening, early detection of, of disease that will, go, that will go sour. These are all the things that we can do. So that's, the, that's something we have already proven we can do. But we know the primary care model is broken in this country. And it's broken because large employers say, you'll never get me to force my employees to pick a primary care physician. It harkens them back to the days of the 90s uh, and, and managed care where the primary care physician was viewed as a gatekeeper. We have got to flip that because we are seeing people say, but I like concierge care. I like concierge care which is the, the exact, what we're trying to get people to do. We want people to go see a primary care physician. We want them to see them in person when necessary, but maybe sometimes it's just a quick email or a quick video chat. You don't, or a quick phone call. You don't necessarily have to, but before you can have those quick video chats and quick text messages, you have to have built that relationship with the primary care. To build that relationship, you have to have attribution. And we know the health plan model of attribution is broken. They say, if you've seen Dr. Smith once in the last two years, that's your primary care. Mm -hmm. Well, you may have seen Dr. Smith once in the last two years when you went to an urgent care. That does not mean you have a relationship with Dr. Smith. 
we have to we have to make it such that employees feel that it is a get to build a relationship with a primary care as opposed to I have to pick a primary care. We've so got to make it a privilege, and we've got to do the attribute. More, Sorry, is that something employers should drive? I mean, do they hitch their wagon to some other way of doing it, or should employers? Let's say I run Joe's Transmissions and I've got 200 employees and I like this idea. How do I make it happen? You can do it through benefit. Yes, I do think it is something employers can drive, but it is about how you market it. Again, it's, it's about the messaging. Um, I do think you can do it. I think you can say, gee, we are going to pay for you to go see a primary care physician. We are happy to do that for you. In fact, we are going to structure, we're going to design our benefits such that going to see your primary care costs you nearly nothing or nothing mm -hmm. at least once a year we will we will 100% cover that once a year primary care visit and all the all the lab testing and and anything that goes with it as long as it you know we you have to put parameters around it. you don't want everybody going and getting full body mris as part of this preventive visit but you get yeah. what i'm trying to say um there are benefit designs that we can implement, but again, the messaging that goes to the employee has to be a you get to, not a you have to. And I also think that we can um, pay for primary care differently, quite differently, such that we reward primary care for doing what they can and should do. So the other thing you and I have talked about is the relationship between primary care and how primary care physicians direct referrals. And we've talked about the use of centers of excellence, which is something that can, that can dovetail with primary, with, with primary care that's, that, that is employer sponsored because then you know, people can be directed to centers of excellence, which may give a higher value in terms of better quality, less things done that don't need to be done and so forth. Could you expound on that? Absolutely. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, a, narrow, a centers of excellence program, such like the one that Walmart and Lowe's and PBGH built, um, and it's been well documented, the success of that. I mean, that's that's been amazing. In fact, my favorite story about, about this is 50% um, of the people that had that were told by a physician that they needed back surgery, and therefore their employer sent them to the center of excellence at Virginia Mason. 50% of those people were told, no, you really don't need back surgery. We can resolve this other ways through physical therapy and other modalities that we have. Think about all the pain and suffering that that saved because back surgery is no fun. Anybody that's had a back surgery will tell you, wow, that was really painful. Um, so think about that. Half of those people didn't eventually need that. that I, I love that story. That in and of itself is a huge story. But a center of excellence is nothing more really than an extremely narrow network, right? We've done our research. We've figured out that this is a low cost, high quality, high value provider, and we're going to do everything we can to encourage you to go there. I have never understood the reluctance to build a narrow network. I have never understood why people say they want so much choice in healthcare. If I had somebody who said to me, Anne, I know that this group of doctors or this group of hospitals or this group of physical therapists or this group of you name the type of provider are among the best, pick among this smaller group as opposed to the entire universe, I would be so happy. 
Because if I pick among the entire universe, I know I have a 50% chance of getting a less than above average provider. So why don't we want people to help guide us to these narrow networks? It seems to me that if we can educate our employees about what we're doing and why we're doing it, and again, do it in a positive way, it's not that we're restricting your choice, it's that we're steering you to higher quality providers. We're trying to make sure they do no harm. Now, everybody's human, will harm happen? Yes, but the chances of it happening are significantly less among this group of providers. We have to manage people's expectations and explain to them why it is we're doing what we're doing. And I think centers of excellence, along with narrow networks, along with all the other things that we can do that we know we should be doing, um, employers just need to have the courage to do it. And I think if we do the right messaging, we can get there. You know, I think given the American psyche that what you described really indicates that that these programs have to pull. People can't be pushed into the programs. There have to be incentives that pull them into the programs. Like, you know, will they pay less? Will they have a better time? Will it be more convenient? If they have to travel to a center of excellence, will that be taken into account? If their wife or their husband has to go with them, will that be taken into account? It, it, to put, to, narrow network sounds so bad until you explain and people understand why it can be a very good thing. And again, right. so why do we call them narrow networks? I think we should call them high quality networks. I mean, again, exactly. it's all in the messaging and exactly. the marketing and the pulling them in. I mean, so, so here's under COVID, we realized that, you know, having to travel across the country to a centers of excellence was no longer feasible. So PBGH is actively working to, to try to build regional centers. And by regional, we're trying to decide whether that means is two hours and uh, okay, or is four hours okay? What does that mean? How far should we ask people to travel? Um, uh, we, we haven't resolved, but, but we're, we're building these, we're trying to build out a regional centers of excellence. But my point being that yes, people need to be convinced of the good of this, and they need to be convinced of the good intentions of their employer. And that messaging has to come not only from their employer, but from outside their employer, because there is left over again, I think from the days of what I will call managed contracting, not managed care, there is some leftover bad taste about all you were trying to do was send me to the least cost provider. Well, that's no longer the case. We have recognized that high quality care is in fact lower cost. And we have got to do some, some sustained messaging around that to our, to our beneficiaries, to the public at large, so that they understand, no, the intention is to, in fact, send you to the higher quality providers. And that the providers understand that, no, our intention is, in fact, to send them to the higher quality providers. Because once they understand that the market is moving that way, it will be a race to the top in terms of quality. It will no longer be a race to the bottom in terms of price. So that begs the question, then, if you're developing regional centers of excellence, how are you doing it? How, how are you identifying them for both quality and cost, et cetera? So honestly, Stan, you're way down in the technical and I'm not the one working on that. So I am apologizing. I cannot speak to that directly. You're asking very good questions. But I do know that what PBGH has done in the past is they've not just looked at the hospital. They've looked at the hospital and the physician both 
and right. both had to be accredited because a very good hospital can have a poorly performing physician and a very high performing physician can go to a poorly performing hospital has can have admit admit privileges at a poorly performing. So it's you have to tie both. You have to really tie both together. And I apologize. I wish I had more depth there. But like I said, I'm this mutt with this uh, a knowledge that's that's wide. But in that particular area, I I, I haven't been the administrator on that program, um, and so I can't really speak to this very specifics of it. Yeah, and one thing we've recognized. I I I just like to reinforce what you said is that you know a top-notch, top-tier, top 100, top 25 hospital can be really good at one thing and just dreadful at another thing. And to look at just reputation alone is just not enough. You know, last, no, in our I, last session, we, we had a, our guest was from a top performing hospital, but they really only do one thing. They only do hearts. And you know, I sure wouldn't go there for sinus surgery. Right. And, you know, again, within PBGH, we have people that are on the leading, bleeding edge of quality measurement. Um, they're pushing for better quality measurement and more exact quality measurement. And these are data scientists who get in there and really dig. And they've been on the forefront of, of developing quality metrics. And so, again, their knowledge, having having them to be able to call on them is a huge help, but I don't claim to have their depth of knowledge on this. And so I will just tell you that, yes, we are pushing very hard, for example, in mental health on trying to get patient reported outcomes, because in mental health, that's what really matters, right? Is a patient reported, do they, how do they feel? Um, we've been pushing on that very, very, very hard. We, um, we've been pushing on, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and we've developed, uh, one of the things that's come out of that is this thing called the health plan playbook where we got um, thir over 30 of our members gave us permission to go to their TPAs, their health plans and say, mm -hmm. we want you to report to us PBGH on things like primary care spend. What percent of your money is going to, uh, of this medical spend is going into primary care? What's your biosimilar adoption rate? Um, can you measure um, uh, a mental health screening and follow up? Can't, you know, we've been trying to go to them to get these measurements back because we know that the individual employer is getting busy doing what they do. And we want to kind of track these things over time and keep focus on the things that we think are really important. So quality measurement, following up on that, pushing that, making it better is a key PBGH function. It doesn't happen to be my key PBGH function, but it is a key PBGH function and something I, you know, obviously I believe in it. Everybody, you know, how can you argue with that? Um, let me remind the audience, if you're listening live, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen to ask any questions. I do have one question, and, and again, if this is out of your bailiwick, let me know. But um, let me rephrase the question here. Do your employer members, do they hunger for these kind of, for these data about quality and value and so forth? Or is that something that you've got to teach them to do? Both. I think it depends on the employer. Um, um, some, some, some very much do. Yes, I think some very much do. And yes, some we have to help, help them understand why this is important. I, I would say that that is, um, that is fair. Um, but those that do hunger for it really do hunger for it. And they are the ones that are pushing for it. And I honestly would tell you that, that, that 
is, of course, it's a self-selected group, right? The people that are going to join PBGH or coalition by yeah. definition are the kinds of people that are uh, more curious, more willing to push the envelope, more willing to be proactive. So I, I, I think that, you know, maybe my view is skewed, but I do think that employers are in fact wanting this information, pushing for this information and taking action on this information. In your experience at PBGH, have employers learned a lot from each other? Absolutely. That's one of, I think, you know, I, I can't speak for the members, but, uh, but I would say both, both at PBGH and when I ran the Wyoming Coalition, the, the, the richest conversations, the conversations that got some of the highest, wow, that was great feedback, were those where we really allowed them to talk to each other on a specific topic because they do learn so much from each other. And we've also talked about, you know, when we're trying to get employers to do the right thing, you know, have you had much difficulty getting to decision makers, not necessarily the people that design plans and so forth, but the people that have to give them the yes or no, the upvote or downvote on making major changes? Again, I would tell you that depends on the company. Um, uh, we have some where that's fairly easy to do um, and some where, you know, the, the benefits department is completely empowered and, and mm. they can do what they want to do. We have others where, yes, they need to run things up the flagpole and that can take longer. Um, it, you know, you've seen one company, you've seen one company. I can't, I can't, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it varies. It's as varied as the companies themselves are. And that's true whether you're talking about large employers or small employers. Um, I will say, you know, when I ran the smaller group, because we did have the CEOs on the on, at the table, um, they could make a decision. Um, but even some of them would say, you know, I, I want to go back and talk to my partners or my my managers before I, you know, it, it is very dependent. It really is as very dependent as every company culture is. But I, I do think we do have leaders. I mean, I, I think we have really strong leaders in this. And I, 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 um, I'm reluctant to call out names because I'll leave somebody off the list. So um, I apologize if I've left somebody off the list, but I mean, I, you know, I, I, we've got really, you know, you've got Intel and you've got Walmart and you've got Disney and you've got Costco and, and I'm, I'm, no, I'm, now I'm kicking myself for even bringing up those names because I know I'm gonna leave people off, but we've got true innovators in this organization that are doing really cool things. I have a, uh, another question that came in, and this one actually came from the great state of Kansas. And it's, how do you get employers to listen to their coalitions? Um, employer members, you know, often get their, their advice only from brokers and consultants and, and may not take, you know, advantage of those rich conversations that you were talking about earlier uh, at your meetings. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't know that I have the magic sauce. Um, I do think that brutal honesty is really part of it. Um, you've just really kind of got to call out the misaligned incentives and you've got to be able to demonstrate them, show them, prove your credibility. And then I think you get, um, you get individuals that are more engaged with you. Um, um, I wish I had the magic sauce. I wish I could say, 
oh, every, I'm the Pied Piper. Everybody follows exactly what I tell them to do, but I can't say that. Um, I do think that where I've had the most success is when you can just sort of say, look, here's the story and here's what this person isn't. I know what they're telling you here, but they're not telling you this over here. And I don't know if you're aware of that. And if you are, great. And if you're not, let me help you understand that so that you understand these misaligned incentives. And it's not the business. It's not, it's, it's not the person. It's the business model. The business model is whacked. We got to fix the business model. I got one more question here. And this is kind of an open-ended question. Um, with your work at PBGH, what do you see as the biggest thing that's going to come down the pike as far as transforming healthcare in the next three to five years? I think COVID has opened up a lot of doors. I think, um, and the example I use is, you know, in February of this year, how many of your primary care physicians were using telemedicine? Or how many of your specialty physicians were outside of, outside of mental health were using telemedicine? Very few. Now, everybody is, right? Okay, so out of this crisis, we are rejiggering healthcare. And I think that will continue. I think we are going to start paying. I think I, I can speak for the primary cares for sure, because this is a group I've been working with the last year. Because of COVID, they, primary care physicians who would have in January said, no way do I want to move to a prepaid type of payment model. Don't even talk to me about prepayment. I'm not willing to take on that kind of risk. They looked at their colleagues in April and May who did well, and they looked at their colleagues who did not, and they said, you know what? I'm open to some kind of prepayment now. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I see the advantage of that. I get how that allows me to invest in my practice. That allows me to invest in better telemedicine. That allows me to invest in having uh, extenders around me, a pharmacist, a nurse practitioner, um, a PA, uh, a social worker that can help my practice do better and actually puts less demand on my time. Because right now I am only paid when I expend my time. But if I can manage my time such that I bring on team members, then, then why wouldn't I do that? You know, I can have a better lifestyle and do a better job by my patients by doing this. And so to me, that is, you know, one of the things that I think we're going to see. I think we're going to see, I'm hoping we're going to see, that I'm going to work as hard as I can to make it happen, um, a change in the way we pay for healthcare, at least in primary care, as a result of COVID. I think that is going to be a fundamental shift we're going to see. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation. I think we're going to see some breaking down of barriers. For example, because of the COVID crisis, a person in Wyoming can now talk to a doctor in California and vice versa. We knock down the barriers around where you're licensed. Um, I think that there's gonna be pushing for that. I think that, we, that we, there'll be a push to make that more permanent. Um, I think we're gonna see um, other changes that allow us to be more innovative in this space as a result of COVID. And I hope we take full advantage of them. Interesting. I mean, you know, truly the silver lining in the dark cloud. And I think we're about out of time for today, but I've really enjoyed chatting with you as I always do. And I hope we get to do it again in the future. I appreciate your working with us today on this podcast. I hope everyone on, on 
who's listening live and in the future on the podcast has enjoyed this conversation. And we encourage you to join us same time, same place next month where we'll try to have another uh, guest with a good opinion about transforming healthcare. Until then, everybody stay safe, stay well, watch those wash those hands, watch that distance and wear those masks. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.